Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Aaron Powell. And I'm Trevor Burrus. Joining us today are Clay Rutledge and John Bitson. They're professors at the Chaley Institute at North Dakota State University and authors of the new report, 2021 American College Student Freedom, Progress, and Flourishing Survey. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Before we get into the results of this survey, can you tell us a bit about the methodology for it, how you conducted it? Sure, um, I, I can do that. So we worked with a, a, an organization um, called College Pulse, which they collected all the data, but this is what they specialize in surveying students. So they've built up a a large, I guess, um, database of student participants from universities all over the country. And so um, John and I designed the survey instrument and they collected the um, collected the data for us. We it was a thousand, so it's a thousand students representing, I believe, seventy one different colleges and uni- four year colleges and universities across the U.S. And it's a pretty diverse and you know, fairly representative sample of U.S. students. What about in terms of do we have enough granular within the types of universities? Because as we get into these conversations about are the kids okay, which everyone likes to talk about, uh, especially on universities, uh, there's often the observation that there's a significant difference between, say, Princeton undergrads and undergrads maybe at North Dakota State University or, or, or liberal colleges up in the Northeast or Northwest uh, versus more Midwest colleges. Is that in the data? Yeah, so we can identify the universities. We have, uh, I believe it's 62% of the students are at public universities, and then the the rest are at private universities. Um, We don't do analysis by university because we don't have enough observations by university, but but we can tell, you know, what universities are at. And this... This survey covers a lot of ground, a lot of topics, but was there like a core thing you were trying to get at or that you that motivated you in in asking the questions that you did? Yeah. So, you know, as you all know, other people have done surveys on issues related to free speech and viewpoint diversity on campus. And so I think that was our starting point, but we wanted to expand beyond that and get, uh, I wouldn't say it's complete by any means, but get a, a more complete or, or a fuller snapshot of the the attitudes and opinions of college students, not just related to free speech, but other issues that we think certainly connect to viewpoint diversity and to issues of potential ideological bias on campus and concerns like that. And so we focused on domains that are really important to us at our institute, which, you know, John can say more about our institute, but um, but specifically relating to human progress and um, also free markets and business. Yeah, I mean, and so I mean, just as an example, like one of the things there have been surveys that have been on in recent years that have shown that young people are attracted to socialism more and not as much attracted to capitalism. And so we wanted to dig deeper and see, well, is it really socialism that they're attracted to or is it hyper redistribution? Or if they're opposed to capitalism, is it really true capitalism that they're opposed to free market capitalism or are they opposed to cronyism? So, so we wanted to just get a little bit more insight into those types of things. And then also as, as Clay mentioned, human progress, uh, there's, I think that, 
there's anecdotal evidence anyway that a lot of students are looking at you know the last few years and they're not really aware of history and how much progress we've made and i mean in a lot of the narrative coming out today it seems like a lot of people aren't aware of the progress that we've made and so we wanted to get some more insight into to those types of things as well and to get into the to the kind of where it starts off we have this narrative of of fear at uh voicing controversial opinions and you asked it that way now is it important when you ask the question so there's two things you do one you ask them to self-identify their politics um and then when you controversial you don't define it you let them have their own definition of controversial well that could be anything i mean so does that kind of muddy it up a little bit or is it is it sufficient that they just think it's controversial uh wherever they're coming from yeah i mean that was a decision that that we had to make and certainly you you know you can imagine people criticizing that well what what does that mean but that was actually i i see that as a strength that was by design because as soon as we start picking specific issues of course to some people it might be controversial and to others that might not be controversial and so then we're you know running the risk i think of starting to impose our you know our own views of what is and what isn't. So in my mind, at least, it's a good idea to let them say, well, you know, and, you know, using your own subjective experience, essentially, um, do you, you know, if, you know, let them kind of fill that in themselves, Um, which of course means people could be thinking of different things. But to us, the point really is how do people want to respond to, you know, to controversy. Do they feel like they can manage it themselves or do they feel like they need to involve authority? And so regardless of what they bring to mind, to me, that that's what's interesting is um, the extent to which students feel like they need to involve administrators um, to deal with that. I personally thought it was the first uh, response. It's 57% total of college students feel safe sharing controversial opinions on sensitive subjects. That seems, I mean, it's over half, but uh, it's not high enough. I, I mean, I don't, I don't think it's nearly high enough. Uh, I, I agree. I mean, we, I think we both agree on that, that it's, it's kind of a disturbing uh, number. I, I mean, just disturbingly low number because because, I mean, you'd hope that all students feel comfortable sharing their opinions. And uh, and so I think that definitely suggests that there's some kind of a, a problem that, that we're identifying here. Is it – I mean, this is where I guess the question of like what counts as controversial feels like uh, – feels relevant because there are, you know, as as a libertarian at the Cato Institute, I hold a lot of opinions that are controversial – in terms of like the Overton window of American politics. And I can imagine, you know, I express them and I get jumped on on Twitter by people on the left and the right. But, and and I can say like, you know, actually you should listen to this and these ideas aren't as abhorrent as you think. But on the other hand, there are certainly opinions that are controversial where it seems like it is a sign of social progress that people feel uncomfortable expressing them, you know, like racist views or anti-Semitic views or, you know, those sorts of things um, that that it would be, you know, if it's, we wouldn't even want 57% of people feeling comfortable expressing those views because those views should be condemned. And so is there, 
a way to interpret the data in light of that. Particularly, I'm thinking because you got very different numbers from like liberals and conservatives on campus. Yeah, I mean, I I think I, I hear what you're saying, but I would also add that if you you know the if you look at the question, do you feel comfortable sharing your opinion on a controversial or sensitive topic being discussed in class? And so. I mean, to me, part of it is if this is fair game for a classroom discussion, <laughs> then it shouldn't be. And and again, we're talking about college campuses, so it's in that in that cultural sphere. I, you know, I guess somebody could have like really, really beyond the pale opinions that they want to yell out <laughs> in the middle of the classroom, but it seems to me that that's probably not what's what's happening. And then if you look at some, you know, I don't want to jump ahead, but if you look at some of the other items, I think you get a more, you know, perhaps a more complete picture, both good and bad. I mean, certainly you see higher numbers and in, in some of the questions about whether or not they feel like their professors are, are, are creating um, the right type of climate. But then when you look at the willingness to report on not just professors, but the willingness to report other students for saying the you know the the wrong thing, so to speak. Um, I think that's when you you maybe start to see where some of the fear and anxiety comes from. Is it's I don't think it's so much that we have a bunch of students that just have horrible views that no one would support, as much as it is the case that students are worried that maybe even they're just no, you know regular or mildly conservative. <laughs> views would be considered beyond the pale and then they would get reported for that yeah and, and just adding to that i mean just if you look at the, the number 43 percent. i mean i don't think if you, that's a really big number if we're talking about um, people expressing the types of views that you're talking about i mean i i definitely don't think that that's what what we're capturing here i think it's people just feeling like they have an opinion that's not popular you know maybe that contradicts the the narrative so to to give this context can you what does this reporting look like because i mean it's been 20 some odd years since i was in college and i don't recall reporting on each other narking on each other and so on like what does this actually look like on undergraduate campuses right now yeah well i think fire that you know has done and has done a good job of documenting the growth of these reporting systems. And so colleges, you know, I don't know like what percentage, but a large percentage of colleges have these like biased response teams. And, you know, I know some of them even have like apps on your phone or, you know, web portals or places to where you can file a complaint or report against somebody for things ranging from, you know, actual things that we would be concerned about harassment, you know, threats, but to like microaggressions or, you know, other things. And so I think there is more of a more of a surveillance and reporting apparatus in place in colleges than there used to be. And just more um, more involvement. Well, there's more administrators involved and there's more there's just more administrators that that's their job is to kind of regulate um, campus social life. And so I think that's definitely like you. I haven't been in co- I was in college. I was a college student you know, over 20 years ago, and um, the landscape has definitely changed. Do we know if over time this is a change in the attitude of the students? Like students are, say, 
more inclined to run to authority to solve their problems or settle their differences than they used to be? Or is this more that when we were in college, the the surveillance and reporting apparatus didn't exist, and so we naturally just didn't use it because it wasn't there, but we probably would have otherwise like so i guess is this is this reporting culture the fault of the students or is it the fault of administrations and colleges that have essentially given them these very enticing tools to use against each other we can't tell you from our survey of course because this is our first one and even looking at i am aware of like other surveys that even like cato's done i think and fire's done um but i don't know how far back they go and if they've really looked at these these trend lines. Um, but I would say, if, you know, if you think of like the coddling of the America, I mean, there are these other, like there's a broader literature out there about the changing and parenting. Um, I guess I should back up and say, first of all, I wouldn't blame the students. I wouldn't blame the students to begin with, regardless of the explanation, because they didn't build the, you know, the culture that they were raised in. Um, but I don't know whether, you know, what the cause is, but there certainly has been a number of people like Jonathan Hyatt and Greg Lugianoff and others who have documented that, well, even from a very early age, it's not just starting in college where we're encouraging reporting, even from a very early age, more and more we're encouraging young people to look to adults and to authority figures um, to to regulate their, um, you know, their anxieties and fears and concerns and things like that. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, I, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think it's probably a little of both as well. I mean, so, I mean, but I think the fact that there are these systems in place kind of reflects the, the culture as well, that, that that's kind of viewed as the way to take care of things. So we need to put these mechanisms in place to make sure that students can deal with it, I guess. So what about the partisan differences here? Um, because, you know, we, we have a pretty big set of 57%. But I mean, it seems to me that at least in the story you hear on Fox News, that it's the conservatives who can't share even the most basic ideas and they're afraid to be on college campuses. So what do we see how it breaks down in terms of self-identified uh, partisan? Well, I mean, I guess the the numbers support support that support that story that, it, I mean, if you look just, I mean, in terms of we're talking about this, this one question, it shows that the, the liberal leaning students are more willing to, or feel more comfortable sharing their opinions than the conservative leaning students. Um, so I mean, it's, it does uh, support that support that story. But still, sixty six percent, only sixty six. And one of the questions, which is again, if if you 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 think you are a liberal, and but sixty six percent are only sixty are comfortable sharing those opinions, which is pretty crazy. Yeah, I think so. And you know, something else to consider, which we don't have the ability in our survey to measure or I guess to you know to to report but others have looked at this idea of it's actually a very you know liberal versus conservative is is a very general way of thinking about it but it's actually a very small percentage of of perhaps people on extremes and on college campuses that for that case would be more likely to be on the left and the right and other domains it might be more in the right than the, it might be more in the populist right but that it doesn't actually take very many people very it can be a small minority of, of very engaged and active people that can kind of take control over 
the the environment. And so it could be even certain percentage of liberal students feel like their views aren't far enough to the left to feel comfortable um, comfortable sharing. So, and we know that you know certainly among faculty and administrators, it's well documented that it's just like it's not even close. Like how you know how you know how many more people there are on the left than there are on the right. So, um, so yeah, I actually am not that surprised that even a a, a fair amount of liberals would would be concerned. And a, an interesting thing, I mean, I, I know we're talking about this one question, but an interesting thing related to that is that the students that feel more comfortable sharing their own opinions uh, are also the ones that are willing to report other students or more willing to report other students, which is very interesting, I think. I, I'm not on that point that Clay made, too. I found it interesting that overall 70% of students did not believe in disinviting speakers when they were had controversial views, uh, which, which goes to this theory that this whole wave of disinvitations and things like this was actually some really interested smaller group of people and didn't rep- represent the general opinion. Yeah, yeah that's right. I, I, I think, think there was true. some political science research that I can't remember that was it like, maybe you guys know this, but it was like, it only takes like 15 or 20 percent of like a of a of a group to really be in charge of just because they're it's it's like numbers multiplied times energy <laughs> like you know like engagement so if if most people are just kind of like yeah i'm just doing my own thing and you know i'm a liberal but i'm just you know just minding my own business they're not the most they're not the the activists right they're not the people that are most likely to be super engaged and so um it's not just a story of numbers i guess is another way of thinking about it that's interesting in light of i think it was a year or so ago we had um warmke and tossi come on to talk about their book grandstanding which was about social media largely but it was it was a very similar thing like you just this kind of incentive to be the loudest voices and to pile on um and so i wonder how much of this is that like our culture's adjusting and that maybe we'll get to a point where, you know, it's not just that people get kind of tired of PC-ness or whatever, but that they just kind of get better at estimating the the difference between like sheer number of people versus loudness of the handful and get better at kind of just ignoring the the most shrill, um, which would then, I mean, maybe make the most shrill tamper it down a bit because they're not rewarded as much. I mean, it's got to be, it's got to, if you're an undergrad and you manage to get like another student punished, that's like a power rush. Right. And in addition, even if you somehow escape formal punishment, I mean, as a psychologist, you know, as a social psychologist, I can tell you, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a, a, a lot of people's like unwillingness to do things not because they're necessarily afraid of formal punishment, but they're afraid of being ostracized socially. And so there's this, you know, there's this concern of being stigmatized and nobody wants to be stigmatized. As, this gets to your earlier point about ideas that we want people not to share or to be proud of. Like it's, it's a good thing that there's a stigma associated with being a racist, right? It's a good thing that we, people in their country you know, nearly every, most everyone, except the most hardcore, maybe actual white supremacists, would not be proud to have any racist views. They would want to keep that stuff quiet. 
Um, so on the one hand, that's a good thing. But at the, the flip side of that is you have potentially ways that it gets weaponized. And, and, and so it's not just, well, I'm going to get kicked out of my university or lose some position. It's, well, even if nothing happens, people are going to think that I'm a bad person. And just it's just wired in our brain to be very, very sensitive to ostracism um, in our in the ancient past banishment would be the kiss of death. So the, you know, that's the way our brains are wired. And so it's, it's really hard to, I, I think, push people past that to, you know, they're not, people aren't as rational as like, Oh, this is only like 10% of people. So I'll be fine. I, I think the, their intuitions are, it's just not worth saying talking because the cost could be too high and what's the point. And that's a problem on a college campus. And I think other parts of our survey maybe connect to that. Well, that's a, getting into the, the progress part, which I think is a lot of the interesting things to think about in your survey is how these things might actually connect to you know the viewpoint diversity and things like this. But I found not unexpected, but concerning that only about half of college students think the world has gotten better in the last 50 years. Now we have a, you know, maybe it's like a libertarian thing that we like to point out progress a lot. And Cato runs a website called humanprogress.org that tries to point this out. But in my own say policy work, I do on say firearms policy, half the thing I'm fighting against is that everyone pretty, or about half of people believe that the world is much more violent now than it was 30 years ago. So it's very hard to do public policy if like everyone's beliefs are incorrect about this. But I, I mean, I, I guess I don't, I mean, I guess I'm asking like, like that is concerning to you too. I, I bet. And any theory of why this is, this is the way it is to, with this very little, little belief in progress. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think Clay maybe can answer the why part a little bit more, but just going, going off of what you're saying is that it's, it's also, I think even more, uh, a little bit more disturbing than just the numbers with the fact that we gave objective measures, you know, things like extreme poverty, which has gone from like in the 19, early 1980, probably 40% of the world's population was in extreme poverty. Today, it's less than 9%. I mean, so we gave specific measures like poverty, literacy, uh, life expectancy, the things that, you know, somebody couldn't just use their subjective ideas about what do we mean by the world's getting better. So these are just facts that you can just look up. I mean, so, so it's not anybody's opinion. And, and so that it is disturbing and, and why that's the case. I mean, obviously, universities need to do a better job of educating students of these things. But maybe Clay has some more insights into why, why only half of people think the world's gotten better. Yeah, I do. I mean, so I think there could be a lot of reasons. One thing we tried to do, of course, this doesn't make our case you know, airtight by any means. But one thing we tried to do to help reduce, I guess you could say, the noise of other sources is we did try to orient students towards thinking about college. So we worded the question such that a lot of our questions are worded such that it's like based on what you've learned in college, based on your college experience. So the idea was we understand people are getting opinions from all sorts of sources. And these sources, you know, are probably not great. Like the, you know, you're, you know, you're talking about the human progress that you run. I've talked to your, your colleague, Marion Tupi about this. And certainly, you know, there's a lot of the, the, if it, if it bleeds, it leads media idea, right? There's a lot of negative media where people are just exposed to, you know, and they're not able to, they're not good at, 
recognizing statistics, right? They just see anecdotes of, oh, look at this horrible shooting that happened. Things must be getting way worse. All right. Um, so I do think, you know, outside of our outside of the 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 college experience, there's probably all sorts of things, forces pushing people to <laughs> to be pessimistic. But on call but our, our thinking was, well, on call the idea of a college campus is it's supposed to be a place of of critical thinking and reasoning and based on on you know um, based on facts and so college students should be uh, in our opinion you know a group that is well positioned to have a more accurate view um, and so we you know that's what we were we were trying to get at so yeah you know that's a long way of saying it is <laughs> it is kind of concerning because we would hope that you know we would hope that one of the things people would walk away from college feeling like is like they understand the you know the state of the world and we also think that that contributes to it's not just knowledge for the sake of knowledge that contributes to a worldview that makes progress continue because if you say hey things seem to be you know things aren't perfect but look at all these indicators that are getting better which means things can get better which means there's hope which makes me optimistic, which inspires me to want to do something. If you go to, if you've ever been to college graduation and, you know, you see uh, the talk from the president or whoever is giving the speech, that's what they're saying. Go out into the world, you know, make a difference. And, you know, but it seems like based on our survey that they need that message pounded in them way earlier than the graduation date um, because they, you know, they don't, not only do they not see a lot of people not seem to believe in, in progress, but the numbers get even worse. If you look at their own, the, their views about the future. Um, so, so yeah, we, I, I do think that it's, it's concerning. Yeah. And, and by the way, it's not, that does not vary among political ideology. That's the same for students, regardless of their political beliefs. I mean, nearly identical. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a good point. I think because that if everything just varied by politics, I think you could imagine a story of like, well, something's going on on campuses where conservatives aren't getting either they're not getting a good education or they have a bad attitude or, you know, whatever the case. But the fact that um, some things converged on, you know, after we got past the free speech part, that there was more convergence on these other views suggests that that it's not just a simple partisan story. Just out of curiosity, when was when was this survey conducted? So, like, when were the students answering these questions? It was in April this year. So, okay. Yes, yeah, so very recently. I I would be really interested to see what this looks like. Those same results look like in a year or two, because it does. April of this year was, I mean, not not the grimmest time in the last eighteen months, but still fairly grim. And and that all of these students were living through the Trump administration and, you know, like the last, you would not be, um, not unreasonable to look at the United States in the last, say, four or five years and say, boy, things aren't as good as they were the four or five years before that. Um, Or, you know, even these college kids were all kind of born, you know, just before or around September 11th and so on. Um, And so I wonder how much of this too is just 50 years is hard to think about. So you might just like contextualize it into your own life. And then, um, but do you think, do you think that just if you did this again in like another year or two, you'd see an improvement just as COVID's behind us and we're seeing the growth and jobs opening and all of that? I, I think we, we might. Yeah. I mean, we're, uh, 
as you alluded to, that many of our questions are about optimism of students that they have for the future. And, and that very well may change. And it's not, if we do it again, we are going to do this again <laughs> next year as well. So this is an annual survey. And so, so we're very interested to see, I mean, we, I mean, that definitely could be part of it, but, but I still think, you know, especially when we focus on this particular question about what the world, how the world has changed, um, again, whether they're not thinking about 50 years ago, maybe that's the case, but, but I don't know how much that's going to change because that's just basic knowledge. That's not like, how do you feel about it? It's like, has the world gotten better or not? So on this question about optimism, which is like only, I mean, the question, uh, Based on what you have learned in college so far, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future of the world? And I saw that, and again, like you guys pointed out, I mean, it's uh, 27% of liberal-leaning are optimistic, 23% of conservative are optimistic, and 27% of independent. So it's, it's it quite is similar. But my thought, based on some recent survey stuff, and this is more true in Europe, is how much of this is actually um, global warming catastrophism uh, operationalized because there's a, I mean, I know of a recent survey in Europe that had something like 50% of students did not believe the world would continue to exist after like 2040 or something. I can't remember what date they chose, but it was, it was a huge number. So if that's, if that's the biggest thing and you've been told for a very long time that by some people the world will end because of global warming or it will be a catastrophe of some huge point that I could see a lot of that actually being explained by global warming, but I guess you guys don't have enough granular data on that, correct? That's correct. But we did ask, so we did ask students to identify what they think the biggest problem is, which isn't, we don't have, we haven't, we haven't done an analysis on that yet, but this was, they could actually write in what they, you know, I'm trying to find the, John, do you know what the exact, I was trying to find the exact question we asked. Um, and I can tell you just from scanning, you know, responses that climate change is the number one problem that they identify, and so that that's possible. Um, and what I would say about that as well, which is you know, which I think is is concerning, and part of my motivation as a psychologist to do this survey is is that kind of catastrophe. The challenge with that is um, psychologically, if you feel, you know, this is pretty well known in, in, in you know in, in psychological science if you feel hopeless or pessimistic then that demotivates you so it becomes almost a self-fulfilling <laughs> prophecy where it's like well the we've only got 50 years or whatever you know whatever their their thinking is it's almost like an excuse to do nothing and to say well I might as well enjoy life and I might as well just you know do what I want to do so in a way, it removes a sense of responsibility, and uh, and and we think potentially that the type of entrepreneurial and innovative like spirit that would be required to take on these big challenges. So part of our goal, I think, is to see not just not just to capture this, but as a way to build future research and future interventions that are like, well, if you if you care, if these are issues you care about, like climate change, it takes the right mindset to take them on. And a pessimistic, hopeless mindset is not is not the recipe for solving problems. I think it also to I think some of this more than as I thought about it, that even the whether the world has gotten better could be explained partially by this too, because 
some versions of climate change catastrophism, I mean, kind of subsume all issues to that. So it doesn't, you know, it it doesn't, if we polluted the rivers more, if we put more CO2 into the atmosphere over the last 50 years, if all this stuff is worse, then crime, birth rate, all this stuff, you know, is kind of irrelevant to progress. Like, so it could go both ways in terms of how pessimistic they are and how much progress they think we've made. We we did find just a a point that, Clay had mentioned previously is that we think that knowledge of, I mean, and again, I thought they, we were very specific in terms of how the world has gotten better. And we think that knowledge of progress fuels optimism as well. And we've done just a little bit of preliminary statistics where we've looked at controlling for human flourishing, socioeconomic status, um, how the political ideology controlling for those things, we find that Students that are more knowledgeable about the progress the world has made tend to be more optimistic as well. You mentioned at the beginning the trying to tease out capitalism versus socialism and views on those, and then just mentioned that you know that we need this defeatism might get in the way of the entrepreneurial spirit. We need to solve a lot of these problems. So maybe we can turn to that. Like, what did you find about attitudes on capitalism versus socialism and entrepreneurship and so on? Well, so so one of the things we initially asked students is, how do you define capitalism? And then how do you define socialism? So we gave students two definitions of capitalism, a free market definition of capitalism, saying that private or property is privately owned and free exchange occurs and the price system determines what goods are produced and how much are produced. Then we gave them a crony capitalist definition saying that Capitalism is defined as a system where corporations seek favors that benefit them, like subsidies and tax breaks and things like that. Um, and we found that just over half of the students define capitalism as the free market form, where, I mean, again, that was surprising. Is I think it was 55% and 45% define capitalism as crony capitalism. I mean, so that, I mean, that could explain... Some I mean, it does explain some of why some students are skeptical of capitalism is that they don't. First of all, they don't understand capitalism as free market capitalism, and then they don't understand the progress that's occurred in the world as a result of free market capitalism. Uh, I mean, so a lot of the lifting people out of extreme poverty has occurred in places where there's been significant economic reforms, like China and India. I mean because those economic reforms, because of free market capitalism, it's lifted them out of poverty. So students don't understand that that's happened. And then they have a skeptical view thinking that capitalism is just big corporations that are trying to, you know, use political tools to to help them uh, succeed, I guess. Um, And then similarly with um, socialism, we asked two definitions of socialism and one definition is, uh, you know, state control or command economy, essentially, uh, central planning. And then the other definition of socialism is like a hyper redistribution definition where, you know, you try to make everyone equal in terms of outcomes. Um, and we found that most students or the majority of students define socialism as more hyper redistribution than those that defined it as a central planning. And, and again, those, that's what's attracting these students, I think, is the hyper redistribution, not the central planning. So it's, it's, I think it gives some additional insights into the previous surveys that have been done uh, for many years on showing 
attitudes towards capitalism and socialism. This sounds like students are fans of the Nordic model, basically. Is... Uh, yeah, I, I, I think so. I mean, I mean, think though, I mean, it's interesting. They're, they're fans of, of this, but I don't think they're thinking about, well, what happens when you redistribute uh, income that much? Well, you eliminate the amount of wealth that's available to redistribute. I mean, at some point, I mean, that you, you eliminate wealth generation. Um, and it's also interesting, uh, something that Clay and I have talked about is that uh, some of the policies that young people tend to be, seem to be in favor of are really kind of crony policies. I mean, they're against crony capitalism, but they want to give subsidies to uh, clean energy companies. I mean, we know what's happened in the past when we've tried to do that, it hasn't been very successful um, or trying to, you know, benefit some favored group in the, in the name of social justice or something like that. Again, that's a, that really is cronyism. You're giving favoritism to certain groups. And so I think the, just the misunderstanding is, has led to kind of a misunderstanding of the implications of different types of economic policies as well. Yeah. And I think this could speak back to the, you know, the, the, the education point of not only are students not learning about, you know, human progress, like to the extent that they're getting, you know, a biased education, the view of capitalism they may be learning in, in their college classes is like the worst case, right? Is like, this is the cronyism. And while at the same time, not getting, not learning that how the, the connection between that and their you know, their favorite version of cronyism and understanding how that can, regardless of whether or not it sounds intuitively like a policy that you would favor um, because it aligns with your ideology or your priorities that, you know, ways that this can, this can go bad. So it seems to be that there, you know, there's, there's room for improvement and, and learning, not just economics, but like the broader implications of these different systems. Do you have a sense of how much of this is coming from the classroom versus views that they either came into college with or are getting from peer groups? Because a, a little while back, I looked and I was reading up on the question of, you know, there's the narrative of like college professors are indoctrinating students into leftism, um, which is very popular among conservatives. And I looked into the survey data on it, and it looks like there's very little evidence that professors seem to change students' political views and that the change that seems to happen tends to be more that students' political views approach the average of their peer group as they get into college. So is this something like that, you know, just having professors teach better economic concepts would help or do we need to change like the youth culture that's driving it? I'd say all of the above, but it's, it might be—it's it might be, going to be hard enough for us to change the the, the, the teaching. But I, you know, speak. But I know of the survey, the research you're talking about. And one thing I did think about is it is true, of course, that especially among young people, but we're all you know we're all vulnerable to this. That our peer groups matter a lot. Like it's not just. Um, it's not it's not just we we listen to professors or scientists or experts or anything like we we care a lot about the people you know the people we spend most of our time with and what they think so i definitely think that that is part uh, uh of the story but on that 
point of, you know, the argument that people say, well, these professors aren't doing a very good job of indoctrinating their students because their politics don't really change. I mean, I think that it, at some level, it's true that people's maybe political affiliations or their self-identified political labels are really, really hard to move move around. But we're talking about specific issues that, you know, I, I think you should be able to frame these things you know, as non-political, you don't have to be a Republican or a Democrat to see the value of free markets or to understand, you know, the pros and cons of uh, of different types of policies and regulations. And so, you know, I think one challenge is is as far as changing the culture, changing the education, everything is moving. You know, trying to move these things beyond just a simple, you know, left versus right issue. Um, because yeah, people don't really change, you know, it's harder to get, you know, people to, you know, to change their political, um, affiliations, but there's a ton of room within any affiliation to see, you know, to, to see specific policies and specific issues that we think are important for progress and flourishing and things that all Americans should, you know, should get behind. And, And we also, in our survey, there is a little bit of evidence. I mean, we found that, over half the students say their view of capitalism and socialism hasn't changed from college, but we asked them specifically, have your classes and other activities in college changed your view of capitalism? And we found that uh, 8% said, yes, it's made their view of capitalism more positive. 36% said, uh, yes, it's made it more negative. So, I mean, so there is some influence, I think, on the from the college campus as well. And, and then socialism is the other way around. I don't have the exact percentages, but more students say that the classes they've had in college and other activities have given them a more favorable view of socialism uh, than say that it's given them a less favorable view of socialism. So there's some of that as well. I, I found it's interesting on this, the way you de- defining capitalism, socialism, before you ask them, which is important. But then you have the entrepreneur part and you have 67% of people think that entrepreneurs are really important to solving problems in society. And you wonder if they're separating out entrepreneurship and capitalism somehow. Cause I mean, a lot of those kids probably, you know, hate Jeff Bezos since it's so in vogue to hate Jeff Bezos, right? Is he not an entrepreneur anymore? Are you only an entrepreneur for the first million? I mean, it's sort of head scratching. I don't know if you're able to get in that with any of your survey, maybe figure out what's going on there. Yeah. I mean, so that, that's something we, that we found in a previous survey as well. And, and we, we were kind of, we were not kind of very intrigued by that because again, it seems very contradictory to be for entrepreneurs and against capitalism. Um, but I think that some of that has to do with, again, the uh, idea that capitalism is crony capitalism. So they're, they're viewing entrepreneurs as kind of the small, small business. I think somebody's starting their own business. Um, and then they're viewing, you know, capitalism as favoring these huge corporations that are just, you know, taking advantage of everyone else. That, that's my view. I, I don't know if Clay has something to add to that. Yeah, no, I, I exactly. I wanted to, and I, yeah, I'm glad you raised that because I wanted to bring that up as well. That if you look at some of our other questions, and as John pointed out, we pointed out we've we've kind of done some of this, not necessarily with college students, but we've done surveys on this in the past. There does seem to be a disconnect on specific things that seem popular, like oh, it's really popular to be an entrepreneur, people like that. But capitalism has been, you know, 
unfortunately, I think successfully labeled <laughs> as this evil bad thing, and they are not seeing the connection, which you know potentially speaks to the education piece. Is like why don't they? Why don't more people understand that? Well, it, entrepreneurship is not going to be a viable path <laughs> if it's <laughs> if it's not a free market system. And so, um, so yeah, I think that. You know, and I think that's another nice thing about, as you as you know, I mean, we have a lot of questions in the survey, but I think that's another nice thing about asking things slightly different and having, you know, having these different types of questions is no one question can tell us everything about the inner workings of people's minds on these issues, but it's it can help us, you know, develop, you know, future research as well. They're trying to tease apart, well, what is it that they don't understand or what is it that they have a negative or positive view of and why? And, you know, and is it because they are accurately assessing it and then saying, I don't like that? Or is it because they have a misconception, um, you know, based on something that something that they've heard or, or, or learned? So in all this, with all the survey, we've talked about concerns and optimisms and pessimisms and things that are going in the right direction or not going in the right direction. Um, it seems to me that maybe you were surprised at how bad some of these situations were like 57% will share, you know, controversial opinions. No one understands that the world is progressing, but on the other hand, you know, if the problem is an educational one, like Clay said, that we just have to make sure they know what capitalism is or that they know the facts about the world, then maybe it's not as concerning as it looks to be at the beginning. I'm not sure what you kind of took away from it for both of you. Well, I, I mean, I would say that uh, although it does definitely highlight some problems and some concerns, I, I think there's, I, I have optimism, I guess, talking about my own optimism is that I think these, these are things that we can address. And, and that's what we're trying to do at the Chali Institute is, I mean, we think that there, it's very important for students to be, challenged on their ideas to be exposed to a variety of ideas not just for we want to develop critical thinking skills and students so we they they need to be presented with opposing views to what they have to in order to develop their critical thinking skills and again to help them be successful in society but we also um want students to to think about these big issues uh and um to understand like what has generated human progress in the past and then be able to have, have an optimistic view of the future and be able to understand then what's going to generate future progress. And so those are all the things, kinds of things that we're aiming to create more of within our university. And, and so I, we're, I'm excited about our opportunity to change these kinds of things and, and improve things. Yeah, I agree with that that totally i mean that's you know we wanted to get a snapshot at first of what you know bef before you have any kind of intervention or try to do something we you know you want to know well what's this you know what are people think what are these students thinking and again taking a step back as a psychologist i, I think young people are generally very um energetic idealistic you know they're you know they want to you know all of us want to have meaning but you know they're really motivated to figure out what their purpose in life is and so i think that there's um even looking at these numbers you know there should be hope to channel the you know the youthful energy and you know going back to the issue you brought up about you know, you know topics like climate change i mean i think one one challenge maybe the you know for these students or for young people in general is if they don't see 
the you know if they don't see a path to solving these problems then they're not going to know how to direct that youthful energy and so you could say well look this is something you really really care about like you're really passionate about this topic um so then you really need to have an an, an evidence-based like reality of what can you do and you know how can you make a difference and understanding how we've had pro- progressed in the past i think is is a is a one way to do that and then building that kind of optimism um an understanding of how to do that in the free market system is is also important. So we're doing a lot of activities here. Um, we run like a um, we're running a human progress and flourishing workshop series where um, John can say some more about some of our other activities. We're doing a film screening. I mean, so we're trying to bring. We're not just here doing a survey to say, hey, look how bad things are. Our goal is to say, hey, we want to we want to. Um, we want to add to, you know, we want to add to what students are learning on, on, on campus to, to advance the cause of progress. And we think that survey, the survey is just helping us, helping us move in that direction, I think. Yeah, exactly. That gets back at your first question you asked at the beginning of the interview. What was our motivation for doing this? And, and that's really the motivation is that we want to figure out how can we improve the educational experience for students. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.